Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. good morning. Hey, thank you for being here. This is, this is, it's, it is such a blessing to be with you um, that the Lord has provided us this opportunity to, to, uh, to come and to worship and to be the body of Christ. And um, I really appreciate your grace even this week. Uh, it, it's it's uh, been a crazy week, hasn't it? Uh, it was interesting uh, just how quickly things go when, uh, as the church, and all of a sudden we're, you know, looking at what the government is saying, what California is saying, what uh, the CDC is saying, and processing through this whole issue with the coronavirus. And so uh, we've been seeking to communicate through email and through Facebook and even our services. Uh, now we're just even praying for the people that will be watching at this later this afternoon. Um, our desire is to be as closely connected as the body of Christ as we are able to. Um, but also just thank you so much for your grace as we are really truly seeking to try to communicate and to navigate these, this season and, and understanding it. Uh, this is never in my lifetime have I ever seen anything like this where you look at the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic, I didn't know really what the difference was. Where if you don't, you know, an epidemic is something that impacts a regional area, but a pandemic is where it impacts globally, where every country in the world has been impacted by this. And we can see how different governments have impacted uh, the most. And I think probably the worst thing in the state of California has been that Disneyland shutdown. I know, I'm, I am so, so sorry about that. Um, but you look at that, then you look at schools closed down, and all of the students say, amen, right? Yeah, until they're like online schools, and moms are like, how are we going to do this? I mean, we're, you're, we're figuring out all of these things, and it's very ominous too, isn't it? It's very ominous, and I mean, I was, I was at... Uh, uh, Costco yesterday wore a full hazmat suit and everything. No, I didn't. But you go in and there's, and you're, you're just seeing, you start thinking and you're more on edge and you're processing through this and you start looking at the world. And there's a balance in this where you want to be acting with wisdom. We want to be rightfully concerned. Uh, we want to see again and submit to the way our government has called us to work within this. But there's one thing that, is, that we can't be, and that's we cannot be gripped by fear. Uh, fear is something that is so easily, can so easily control us because fear is really the result of something that is unknown to us, right? Something that can happen to us. And there's a lot of fear that's going around this uh, pandemic right now in the world with the coronavirus, and really, if you kind of bring that down, what is the worldly fear? Um, I'm going to break it down this way. The worldly fear of the coronavirus right now is that me or a family member of mine, somebody I love, can contract the coronavirus and die, right? That's the thought. And so this is what can happen. And so we think of that to the ultimate piece is that people can die. But this is the fear. And it's a fear of the unknown. You don't know where you can get infected. You don't know how long it could stay. It lives on countertops. We hear all of these things, and it can just dominate our thinking. I, I found this quote by Spurgeon. I thought it was very interesting about fear, and he wrote this. He said, generally, there is no greater coward in the world than the man who never will acknowledge that he is afraid. Uh, the point is this, is that fear can creep in. The fears of these things, the thoughts of these things can creep in in our minds, 
But the question for us is when we can see the things in the world that we ourselves can be afraid of, really comes down to this, is how do we respond as the church? How do we respond as Christians? And I don't know if you know my wife, but she's, she's brilliant. And she and I were talking the other day, and she said this to me. She just said, you know, we need to be not, we need to not be looking at this through the eyes of the virus. We need to be looking at the virus through the eyes of God, right? We need to be looking and saying, okay, God, what are you doing? Because is it fair to say, and I would love to get an amen to this, that God is in rightful, wise, sovereign control of our world? Amen. Amen. God is over this. God has a plan in this. God will redeem this. And we know that what God is doing in this is is amazing. We want to be very, very uh, concerned over, over any type of ailment that people can get. But think of it this way. Let's look at it through the eyes of God. God is revealing on a global scale the fragility of life. And God is revealing through that a disease that is the result of the fall, which is connected to our sin against God. And therefore revealing to the world that there is an even greater virus that impacts every person that would walk the planet, and it's a virus of sin that not leads to a physical death, but to an eternal death, an eternal separation from God, and man needs that antidote quickly. Man needs Jesus more than anything. And this is the beauty of it that we have, is we can look at the chaos of the world, and as a church, our call is to not cower in fear and live behind walls of hand sanitizer, right? But rather to be the people that's the city on the hill that is When people are coming to us and declaring to us maybe fear or difficulties, we go to them in grace and we show them that there is an even greater issue in their lives. But Jesus Christ has already come and conquered the disease and is offering us eternal life. That's the known. That's our known is that that has happened. That though we were born into sin, though we were separated from God God for. Forever, God has saved us by his grace by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. That's why we cannot operate by fear. We have to operate by faith. But still, should we be people that are concerned? Yeah, concern is different than fear, right? Concern acts in wisdom. Fear can act in doubt. But because our greatest fear has been conquered, we need to look at this as an opportunity to declare Again, the answer through Christ. I I was looking back even historically at when the church has dealt with circumstances like this before, and one of which, this has happened in the past, I was reading about Martin Luther when he was dealing with the Black Plague, and then I was looking at, in 1854, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a new pastor in London, and a cholera outbreak came about the city. Now, if you don't know anything about cholera, it was a disease that if you caught and contracted it, you would you would begin having symptoms and die within hours. And so what was happening throughout the community is that people were getting cholera and it was just being pervasive and it was, and it was running on and people were dying. And so what did they do? What did the church do? What did Spurgeon do? They didn't hide from it. They leaned into it. 
Look at this quote from Spurgeon. He said, all day and sometimes all night long, I went from house to house and saw men and women dying. And oh, how glad they were to see my face. When many were afraid to enter their houses, lest they should catch the deadly disease, we who had no fear about such things found ourselves most gladly listened to when we spoke of Christ and of things divine. This is saying, we see the issue of the world. Church, we lean into these things. We don't lean away from them. We see the difficulty and we lean in because we understand that there is a greater issue on the lives of people and it's that they need Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of it. Now again, we act in wisdom, but we act. So whether it's the coronavirus or cancer, our call is to be the church, to care for the sick and needy, to remind them of the glories of Christ, and to look at the opportunities of a world that could be gripped by fear to show them the glories of Jesus Christ. And even, isn't it crazy today that we actually have the technology today where we can connect with people without even being in their vicinity? We can call them, we can stream things, we can have all of this. We can show people Christ in so many different ways. We can connect and share with people the one thing that has conquered our greatest fear and the one that we love more than anything, and that's Christ. This is where we're called to be fearless of a disease because we're fearless of death. I love when Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, when we understand that our greatest fear has already been silenced. Now, we don't have necessarily all the medical knowledge, but we have eternal knowledge, and that's what we give. You know, we looked at last week, and I found this so apropos as we were in this, it started this, this, uh, this, this series called Fearless Faith, and looking at Jesus as he's walking into Jerusalem, literally going into a place to proclaim the gospel, and he's leading up to this place where he's going to cry out to the entire feast of booze, to all these people around, to letting them know that he has living water, he has eternal satisfaction, he has everything for them, and he's going to proclaim it, but in the face of people that want him dead. Here is Jesus walking into a group of people that wanted to kill him, but he did not hide. He didn't hide from the, from the face of danger. He proclaimed the gospel fearlessly. And, that's, and he did that, why? Because he loved these people and he desired them to hear even if they were opposing him. We looked at this last week in Fearless Faith. We saw this, these first two, that fearless humility reveals the gospel's authority. Jesus went in and he showed humility. As we're called to show humility, and we show humility before the Lord, it shows that we sit underneath an authority that sends us. We also saw that fearless love reveals gospel conviction. Here is Jesus loving the very people that were opposing him because he had a deep conviction and knew this to be true. And it was the same thing for us, is that we have a fearless love for the, for the world, we have a fearless love for one another because the conviction of the gospel is eternal and it's real. Now look at this as when we start in verse 25 is where we looked at last week. And now, we, now we're walking into this next place where we begin to see this, number three, where fearless faithfulness reveals the gospel's worth. Follow along with me. Look at verse 25. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him from whom I come, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. Here's, here's this picture that we're looking at, is here is Jesus now going in, fearlessly faithful to proclaim the message. But what we find in this is he's, as he's in this, as these people want him killed, he is still proclaiming it, which shows us the worth of the gospel. Now we kind of come in again from where we were last week, but what we know is this, there's no secret that the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead. Now, even the crowd knows it, right? So this wasn't just, just some, uh, some hidden knowledge. People know that the Pharisees want him dead. But what was Jesus' response in the face of murder? Look at this. Here he is teaching, speaking openly. The word means boldly. And that what happens? They say nothing to him. The people ask this question, can the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So here you have the Jewish leaders, they're completely speechless, because in the past, you've got to think about this, they were able to control people by fear. Fear was a tactic, and it worked. They would alienate people from their communities, or even stone them, kill them, and so they could control people, but now it's not working. In fact, it's backfiring. And so they don't even know what to say. They're trying to figure out how to respond to this. But because they're speechless, the crowd thought that their silence was a potential endorsement that Jesus was the Messiah. But now look at the crowd as going back and forth. Look at verse 27. They say, now, but we know where this man comes from. And when, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So now we have the crowd and they're confused. They're thinking, well, look at all he's doing but we know where he's come from, Jesus. This is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He grew up at Nazareth. You remember what we saw before? We knew his parents. We know where he's from. But they don't understand it. They were confused in their thinking. In fact, they mis misinterpreted Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So they were looking and thinking that the Messiah was just automatically going to show up one day in the temple. They would think, well, he's not going to come from Nazareth. But Jesus says this. He says, you know me and know where I come from. He's saying, you're right. I am from Nazareth. I was born in Bethlehem, as the prophecy said, as the scripture said. But then look at this here. He's saying, but I have not, I have not come of my own accord. Now, this is really important to, to grasp here and important because what Jesus is revealing is he's saying, I did not come here by myself. I came here as it was planned, and I came here in harmony with the Godhead. Meaning that amidst all of this, I am in this dangerous circumstance. I am in this, what, what has appeared to be as the worst case scenario, people wanting you dead. I have 
come here into this world, into this circumstance of the harmony, in the harmony of the Godhead. Look what he says, he who sent me is true. The word true is alethos, it means pure, meaning that God who sent me, the Father who sent me is pure and holy, meaning that the reason is holy. But I want you to see even how loaded this statement is. Jesus is saying, because I was sent from God means that I existed with God before I came. And now you have to understand I came from heaven to earth, which declares that I am of God. And then I will go back to be with him. But look at this. Look what he says here. Here is Jesus declaring who he is. He's declaring who the Father is. And, he's, and here he's talking to these people that are going back and forth and their understanding of what the Messiah is and who God is because they know him. They think they know him. But look what Jesus says. In him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Now, I, I really want you to see this because this is something that is overwhelming. Um, we, we like to control things with the amount of information that we have. Uh, we want to we be in the know. And here are these people that felt like they had the right amount of understanding, the right amount of information about who Jesus is, or who the, excuse me, who, the, who Jesus was, but also who the Messiah was to be. And they're factoring all this information out. But what Jesus is revealing to them is saying, you think you understand this, but you don't get it. In fact, the word know is an intimate knowledge. It's a, it's a personal relationship. Now, I want you to know Christ's intention of this. Christ is not seeking to be condescending with this statement. He's not coming as saying, oh, I'm from him, and you don't know him, and I do. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Christ is revealing the issue in their life. This is his grace to reveal this. He's revealing that you can think you have all the information, you can think you have it all together, but the reality is, is you don't know him. You don't have saving faith in him. Now let me show you him. Let me tell you that I came from him so that now that I can introduce you to him. That's the heart of which Christ is going at this. That's why when he says, I know him for I have come from him and he sent me. The problem you don't know him, and you need him, but I can show you him because it's where I am from. Again, this is the grace of Christ revealing the reality of their soul, that they needed the gospel. They needed to see their failure of sin. Now, look at this, though. Jesus was fearless in his faithfulness to the mission. He was faithful because, again, it reveals the worst of the gospel. Here he is walking into a, into a, a world where the crowd knows that these people want Jesus dead, and he doesn't silence, he doesn't say it, he leans into it, and he says, this is how much you need it. This is how much you need it, where Jesus could, could have maybe ridden the rails a little bit, played a little politics, but he didn't do that. He put everything on the line. This is the heart of Christ, to forgive these people. In fact, the very people that would kill him. He was, we're going to see in a moment how his hour had not yet come, but here he was six months 
from a time where they would finally kill him. It's the heart of Christ. Here's Jesus, even when you look at Luke 23, 34, you see him on the cross, still looking down. Look at this verse. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. What's going on? Here is Jesus, again, being so faithful to his mission to pray for the very men that are gambling for his garments at the base of the cross, turning it into a mockery, a game. But Jesus, understand his heart, his heart for those people at the foot of the cross, his heart for you, his heart for the world, isn't to prove himself right, but rather to make men righteous. He doesn't just want to say, see, I told you. He's saying, no, I want you to understand that you can find forgiveness through my blood, that you can find grace in my gift. And this is why I love, look at, look at the heart of Jesus. I want to go back to that word openly. When the people said he proclaimed this message openly, the word is parousia in the Greek, which means confidently or boldly. You know, we, when we look at our call, our call to go into difficult circumstances, and sometimes maybe the most difficult circumstance you have with the gospel can be sitting around the dinner table with the family. Maybe we're afraid of the difficulty of, of the relationship that can come from that or living it out at work. But our call is to be faithful to the message and to be able to experience the hostility that can come our way, to lean into the hard circumstances. Why? Because it reveals the value of the gift. When we're willing to, to, to have those gracious and hard conversations with people about their sin and their need of Jesus Christ, it actually reveals our love for them and the value of the gospel. And we're called to do it openly and boldly. Paul said in Ephesians 6.20, he talks about proclaiming the gospel. He says, I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And again, boldness is not arrogance. Boldness is confidence with conviction. And our love drives our boldness. But this is why we're called to be fearless in our faithfulness, to lean into difficulty. Why? Because we know that the gospel is greater than our circumstance. We know that the value of the gospel for us and the value of it for others is that they can know God, that, 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 that the disease of sin can find its remedy in Christ. You know, it's interesting, I was... I was um, you watch all of these, uh, these things that are going on and schools shutting down, Disneyland shutting down. You even see movie theaters limiting their capacity. And, but, you know, I, I find it fascinating that the people in our community that are not shutting down but leaning into it are our healthcare workers, right? They're the ones that are seeing this, and they're, they're actually the ones running towards it. You know, our hearts and our lives is when we see this, and take the coronavirus out of this, when we just see the nature of people's lives, when the weight of their eternity is, is before us, man, we should just run towards this. If we told everybody in the world, hey, we have a solution to this virus, and it's going to be in our parking lot, and you'll be fine, and you'll be cured of it, man, people would flock to that, right? But we have that true answer of eternity, and our call is to give it.
That's the beauty of what we have in the gospel, to show the world there is only one that can silence fears, and again, that's Jesus Christ. So whether it's family conflict or the coronavirus, you know, this is, again, it's, it's never a time to hide, but to be faithful to proclaim. And here's the thing, too, is we don't wait for storms to pass. We labor in the storm. We live through the storm. So if the world is sick, we care for the sick. We wipe their forehead, but we do so for the purpose of telling them of the gospel. Now, how did Christ respond to this? When, they, when all of a sudden these people are coming out and, and, and still seeking to kill them, how did he respond to Christ? How did the people, excuse me, respond to Christ's call to know God? Look at verse 30. So, so, they were, so as they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me? And you will not find me, and where I am, I cannot, you cannot come. Number four, what's Christ revealing? And I find this too in his statement. It's this, that fearless peace reveals gospel protection. Fearless peace reveals gospel protection. Here is Jesus, again, staring down the face of these people that want to kill him. And he knows that in six months' time, that's going to happen but always, always being the prince of peace. So here's these people again. Let's go back in the circumstance. They're going back and forth in their belief in Christ. Some people are trying to really put all the pieces together. And some are finally saying, you know, listen, what more proof do we need? Look at the signs he's doing. If the Messiah was to come, would he do more miracles than this? Now you look at the Pharisees. This makes the Pharisees angrier and angrier because now what they see it as is he's winning the crowd. And so what was their response? Look what they do. They sent officers to go in and arrest him in the temple and kill him. And you look at the temple guard, and here they are en route to arrest Jesus. But here's the miracle. Look at this. And no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I want you to see two things here. The first is this. The first is God's reason for not allowing Christ to be arrested. And it was this, that there is a preordained hour when Christ would go to the cross. That there is a specific time that was set by a sovereign God where Christ would be taken into the city on the back of a young donkey. And he would be beaten, as the scriptures would say. He would be tried, as the scriptures would say. He would be killed, as the scriptures would say. And he would be the true Passover lamb as the scriptures would say, to take away the sins of the world. What's the point? What's the point? The hour was coming. There was no escaping this. The greatest threat they wanted to put on Christ was coming, and he knew it, but it wasn't their time. So God wouldn't allow it because it was not their hour. It was 
his hour and God's plan. But what was the method and how Christ would be protected in that hour? I want you to see this too. This is the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see what is the miracle that God used to hold these officers from arresting him. I just jump down, look at verse 45. We'll see this next week. But it says this, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, look at this, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Do you see that? No one ever spoke like this man. It was his words. It was his message. So God prevented the hour, but the miracle, why no one would lay their hand on Jesus because they're walking forward and going to them and they're hearing Jesus speak. And what's he talking about? He's talking about grace. He's talking about an intimate relationship with God. He's talking them in ways that they've never heard before from the Pharisees because that was entirely about what you can do to be saved. It was a clinical relationship with God. And here is Jesus showing them that God has a love and a compassion for them. And here is Jesus revealing that love and compassion and that urgency for their souls and showing to them, listen, I'm not going to wait and I'm not going to fear death because I want you to know as the officers are walking towards them that you can have life in his name. And not just any life, the fullness of life, the Zoe life, the jaw-dropping, window-rattling, like face-on-the-pavement-worshipping life of Christ that will radically transform me and not only give me hope in this day and peace in this moment, but for all time. And that message stood out in this world. Let me ask you this. Does our message of hope stand out different in our world? Does the message of the gospel that, you know what, yes, we will all one day taste death unless the Lord comes, but Jesus Christ has come to forgive you of your sin, the sin you committed when you were 12 years old and you stole something from, your, you know, from the kitchen, right? Or the sin that you committed against your spouse, the sin that's been in your heart, the anger in your life, the bitterness, the frustration, the difficulty, all of these things, whatever it has been done, that the power of the gospel is that Jesus is saying, I will forgive all of it. And then not only will I forgive all of it, I will give you this relationship. You know, sometimes I think we, we, we forget what the balance is, the difference between mercy and grace is. Mercy is, is holding back what we do deserve, and grace is giving us what we don't deserve. And so the two always work in harmony with one another. God is always holding back what we do deserve so that in grace he can give us that life and that peace and that solace of forgiveness in Christ. We don't deserve that. But Christ wants us to dwell in that, to drink of that life, and to live in that life. And this is the thing I love about what we're called to do. We're called to speak these same words of life. And these Jewish officers that would have come, and come to Christ, they, they, they were not as trained nor as heartless as the Roman 
soldiers were. In fact, they, they, they would spend more time training in the Torah and the Mishnah than they actually trained in battle. But they heard him. Jesus revealed, yes, you failed. Yes, you have something to fear in eternity, but I am here to silence those fears by forgiving your sins and making you right with God. This is the thing. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel will stop people in their tracks because it is so different from the world. The gospel says, don't fear death. Righteously walk in reverential fear of God. Look at verse 33. Jesus says to the crowd, he says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. Here's Jesus revealing something to them. He's saying, I was sent by God on a mission, but I'm going back to him. Again, saying my origin is from heaven and I'm going back to heaven, but that there is a time on this moment that right now, you have to know that right now, God is in front of you right now, and in six months, you will kill me, but I will rise from the dead. But look what he is saying. Even though I've risen from the dead, you're going to hear about this, and you will still seek me because you're still going to want something from me, but you won't find me because I'm going to be with my Father in heaven, and you can't come. Why? Because you want to come to me based off of your own understanding. And what's he say in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He's revealing to these people that they have their own standards and their own ways to try to get to Christ and try to get to God and understand all of this. But Jesus is revealing to them, no, 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 you have to understand I'm the way. But there's also an expiration date for us. This is, again, when we look at, the, at, at our world, understanding the fragility of life, it so brings the light, Isaiah 55, 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Look at Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It shows the urgency of this world. And what a conversation topic of disease and sickness and illness to be able to bring it back to the Lord and say, listen, today, today, call upon the Lord, seek the Lord while he is near. There's urgency to this message. Time is short Listen, we need to hear it and embrace it and live it and love it and we need to show the world that they need to hear it and they need to embrace it. But we need to give it and not be fearful to declare it, but to walk into these circumstances with it. Here was Jesus, his hour was coming, the difficulty was on edge, but he was always the Prince of Peace. Look at verse 35. Here's the Jews, look at the Jews' response. They said to one another, what, is, what does he, this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's thinking that, well, he's going to skip town, right? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So, again, he's talking, okay, is he going to bail on the Jews and he's going to go and engage the Greeks and walk into a Hellenistic culture and establish a whole new type of ministry? Is he going to do that? What does he mean 
by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. I think there's one thing to gather from this is they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They were so in their own thoughts. They, they were trying to make sense of it in their own human logic according to their own state of mind that they didn't grasp this. So let me ask this question though. Was Jesus unsuccessful? Was Jesus a, a poor evangelist to where these people didn't just fall and, and repent? Did, was, he, was he bad in his communication? No, and in fact, even though these people were not embracing him, Jesus wasn't wasting his time. Jesus knew that he would proclaim to them the gospel, and he would proclaim to them the gospel until he went to the cross, and he would proclaim to them the gospel and show them that even on the cross, he would always be the prince of peace. He would always be faithful to declare even in the act of death. Why? Even go back to Luke when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what you're doing. You go, to, you go to Matthew and then you see in Luke what happened to those people that were gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross. It says this. It says that the centurion looked up and said, truly, this one was the son of God. It reveals that Jesus in his death, when Jesus faced what the world's greatest fear would be, that the very people that he prayed for at the foot of the cross, these very people that drove the nails into his hands were the very ones that were saved by the grace that he secured for them by his death. But always being the prince of peace. We do not have to operate in fear. We operate in peace. Why? Ephesians 2.14 says this. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Meaning that our war with God is over. That we are at peace with him. And we know who he is. We know he's in sovereign control. And we know that our greatest disease has been cured by the blood of Christ. But I don't know about you, but have you ever wrestled with anxiety? Anybody? I've been there. I, I get it, right? Because it's so easy to look at these things that seem so big and so confusing and so ominous and think, God, how, how do I handle this? How do I deal with this? Or it can be even the situation of a relational difficulty or a challenge in life. When Christ is our peace, something happens. Look at Philippians 4. I think that we, um, we read this verse wrong quite a bit. Usually we start Philippians 4 in verse 6 where we say, do not be anxious about anything, right? But look at it in verse 5. It says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's the point here? This isn't just a command to saying, don't be anxious. It's understanding that the Lord is at hand. 
That when you walk into the most fearful circumstances in life, God is already there. And that as you are navigating days of uncertainty and difficulty, because yes, every day has those challenges, we do not fall into anxiety. We do not fall into a fear that controls us because we know God is there. So I don't need to be anxious about anything. I don't need to be anxious about anything. So anything from the coronavirus to how I'm going to pay my bill, I don't need to be anxious about that. But what do I do with that? What do I do with the things that can cause me anxiety? What do I do with the things that cause me fear? Look at this. He says, what's the opposite of anything? But in everything, right? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we take the very things that can cause us to be anxious and we bring those before the Lord in prayer and then we are thankful in our hearts because we know that God is listening and that God will act and that God is in sovereign control. And what's the result of that? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's this mean? Listen, peace is a barricade. Peace is a wall that is impenetrable by evil. And the only way we can be outside of peace is when we walk from the presence of God and we believe the presence of the world. Jesus was at perfect peace and fearless in the face of the very men that would accuse him and kill him because he was at peace with God. And he was not anxious about this circumstance because he knew what God would do through it. It doesn't mean that we won't be hurt or harmed or walk through difficulty in this life. But what it does mean is that we can be at peace through it. You know, we look at Christ, he's confident, he, again, he's conquered our greatest fears. It's been silence, it's been done. And now we can walk into this world and we can declare that their fears can be silenced too. You know, it's, again, it's a fascinating season that we're in and it's gonna be really interesting to see how everything continues over the course of the next few weeks. But you know, may our call not to be to look at this just as, okay, what's going on with this disease? But may we, again, look at this through the eyes of God and to, be, and to show how do we respond as a church? And it should be this, not just from the disease, but in every day, that they need to hear the solution of the gospel. And we need to proclaim the salvation of Christ. It's not a season for the church to hide out. It's a season for the church to light up and declare the beauty of Christ. You know, it was really interesting. We're actually gonna launch into this next week. We were planning on, again, starting this, going into this week called The Five, and we're gonna put this online, and we, this is a card we're gonna actually gonna hand out to you next week. Um, we were planning it this week, but we had a lot of things going on this week. And if you look at the back of the card, you're gonna see this. These are gonna be five people, again, in your life, from your work to your family, friends, neighborhood, social, I, I want you to be thinking about that now. Even today, I want you to be praying for people that need to hear the gospel. People that need hope. People that maybe are living in fear. 
that we and you and your life can go after and begin to pray for. And we want to be praying with you as well. Because what a time to show people that we should not be people of fear. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing, you know, even looking at our country today when this is called for a, a, a national day of prayer. And the thing I love about prayer is, again, we go to the one true God and pray. You know, some people pray, but we know the one true God that we can go to. And as we pray for our country, as we pray for people around us, yes, let's pray for physical protection, but let us pray for that eternal solution to be presented to them and for lives to be changed, not just for this day, but for all eternity. Amen? Amen.